Welcome back to another episode of a podcast written by a software engineer. Um, I'm absolutely lucky today. I've got an amazing guest. Carlos, welcome to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I know, especially with your busy schedule nowadays, uh, you have so many interesting stuff happening. You're an entrepreneur, you're a software engineer. You got so many, uh, I guess, different projects going on. And uh, definitely today, I think it's the best opportunity to dive straight into it. But, you know, for the people who don't know you, what do you do? What have you been doing? Tell us more about that. Well, um, yeah, thank you for the kind words. Um, so I, I guess that I am a software engineer. That's actually what I do for a living. And, but what I really enjoy doing is like building my own businesses and trying to build like side projects and uh, that kind of thing. And that's actually my goal is actually building my own kind of business and, and maybe hiring more engineers in the future. That's so cool because um, everybody hears about the Cinderella stories where by the time you hear about it, they're like worth billions of dollars and nobody really sees this like beginning phases, like this initial phase where you got to make decisions. It's like a, everything you got to test out and see if the market fit is there. So we're definitely going to dive into that and see, I guess, your perspective on how to tackle these problems. Yeah, that'd be nice. Um, but yeah, let's go back a bit. Um, so how I would describe you is, Carlos, you're probably one of the most ingenious engineer I know out there. Um, in terms of being technically savvy and just like looking at a problem and like, I guess, tackling, implementing it. But a lot of people who don't know about this is that you didn't have a background in computer science or software, engin- software engineering. In university, if I'm not mistaken, you did electrical engineering? Yeah, it was well, electronic engineering, which is well, similar, probably a similar category. Yeah. But yeah, that's the, uh, so I did not study computer science. That was, um, it's kind of, tricky to say because I'm not sure if it was a good thing or a bad thing um, in a way like I learned a lot of things that I that were very useful like I, especially for example I learned a lot of maths and like I learned a lot of like low level like programming and low, I learned a bit of like C and do a lot of assembly code and that kind of thing but I never actually got into like high level programming languages like I don't know like JavaScript or, and which is kind of the most useful language that you can actually learn at the moment. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's actually a really good point because when you said you learned all these, um, I guess, uh, more classic programming languages, Java, C and all that, was that part of your curriculum or was that something that you did on the side? Well, I mean, I, we, did, we did have a few courses on C and assembly, concretely. Those were, those were the ones that we learned. Okay, they were but part it, of your program. And yeah, but not, not much. Like, honestly, the, we didn't get very deep into them. Um, but I definitely didn't learn any like, high-level language like Java or like JavaScript or any web at all. Like, that, that is something that uh, I totally like, learned on, my, on the side. And I remember specifically one summer that um, probably was um, yeah many years ago, but I remember that summer and I, I did buy a book on web programming and web development and I started learning all the like HTML and you know just like CSS and JavaScript and I was like I, my initial goal is trying to like learn that so I could make my own social network that was a that was a thing back in the day. Now uh, yeah probably that would that's probably the last thing I will try to build. But yeah, at that time I thought that I would build my own social network and uh, which it was uh, definitely an interesting project to get started with. And I learned a lot of things. Yeah, and when you're talking about like thinking about these ideas, whatever, that's not the first like big idea that actually became a thing nowadays. We're gonna dive into it maybe later is that, uh, I remember you told me that you built 
a quadcopter back then when drone weren't like a standard thing. So for the people who don't know what the quadcopter is, basically the modern day drone. And this yeah. we're talking about at least what like maybe ten years ago where you had the idea of yeah, doing it and you did that. So this but, is kind of, I guess like for me the kind of character that you are is basically you'll have all these ideas of trying to build the first social network, trying to build a quadcopter, and like this was before everything, any of those was a standard. So that's is if people don't know you, that's probably the best way to describe you is that you always think about these kind of stuff years ahead of everybody. Um, the other thing that I do want to point out from what you're mentioning in terms of electrical engineering, my background, I did a, I did computer science in university, and surprisingly, the web aspect of software engineering is so light, even in the computer science programs. We did loads of like Java, PHP, C. We didn't even really touch C++. So like during the whole curriculum, it was like databases and all that. How do you feel about this imbalance? I guess nowadays it's 2019. How do you feel about all this focus on, I guess, building more socket apps as opposed to web apps or mobile apps in a university degree? Um, I think I think it's pretty tricky because on one side, um, learning all, all those things is pretty is really really interesting. It's really useful. Like especially, I would I would put special attention to like data structures and algorithms. Those are like two big things that it's important to learn. And I think I think it's very very useful if you know them. Um, so on the other hand, like learning a specific APIs, like could be like Java or like learning that language. That if you are never going to use Java in the future, that may not be the most useful language to learn, or may not be actually a useful useful skill in, to have. So it's tricky because I think one of the the thing the problems in the, of the university is that like professors they learn their thing a few many years ago. So um, it happens that the web community and the computer science community it, it actually advances very quickly. So it can happen that a professor that learned some like like whatever like subject like ten years ago, now they are teaching something that is totally deprecated and like people are not using anymore. So the industry moved moved forward, but we didn't move forward with the teaching or the education. And I think that at least that's a specific that's a real problem in Spain. I'm not sure other countries, but I do have that problem in Spain. And so yeah, I think that it is best to focus on the on the basic materials that could be like data structures or and, and algorithms and or yeah. databases for example databases so of quite... course that's that's a big thing but it's like learning a specific language that you can learn that in the future you, you don't need to learn php you don't need to learn like like java that you can focus on other languages and and that may change because now it's javascript but who knows like maybe in like 10 years it was going to be something else so it's kind of like pointless to like pay so much attention to one specific language. That's very true. Um, just because the way I thought about it was that I feel like when I was in uni, uh, when you were talking about like you went out of your way to get books to read about web programming and all that kind of stuff, for me it was exactly the same. I remember during, I mean, how I got my first job was definitely I got a job in web development. And they, when I was mentioning that, they didn't really have loads of web development in the actual course load. I had to learn all that myself, like learning Node.js on my own, learning all of that using being able to use frameworks. But I think without having the basis of, I guess, understanding what a function is, understanding how a class is and all that, it would be much harder to be able to do that on your own time. So I do understand yeah, why, of course. I guess, like computer science degrees, they'll focus on the theory, but then like it really takes you on your own time to, if you want to explore it, you got to do that. Um, the one thing that I'm interested in is that you studied at a university in Spain um, in electrical engineering. 
And you did mention that there was like all these computer classes or like these computer topics that you get to do. How does the language barrier work? So were your textbooks in like Spanish or were they in in English? Like I want like I guess the logistics behind, it, not the actual content of what you were learning. Well, um, that's um, it's a it's a funny one because I think the specific knowledge and technical knowledge is mostly in English. Now um, we do have the textbooks in Spanish. Now the problem is that some of the like terminology is actually in English. And it is actually a funny thing now because I, I did work with many Spanish engineers in, like lately. And it, it is pretty tricky because I do know the terminology in English because I honestly have never worked in Spain. So I, I do, not, do not know the Spanish terminology for some of these words, but they may have a different word for, I don't know, like so, some algorithm or some like data structure and they have a specific like name for that. And, and I would not know that. So and it is uh, it's a bit of a tricky one like the like internationalization of technical knowledge. So um, I mean, because I think about this all the time. So yeah, because when you're going into school, they I mean the instructor will be saying all of it in Spanish. Like this recursion, they probably have a different word in yeah, Spanish exactly. for recursion. I I'm, I keep on thinking about this because people in like Asia and China and all that they do program as well. So how does it work? They're like, they'll be talking to each other in like Mandarin or Chinese or Cantonese or But they will still write the code in English, right? Yeah, writing JavaScript, it's still gonna be var or const or I whatever guess. it is. And like, so it's just yeah. these like language barrier, literally of like the human language. They did try at some point in the past, like there, there were different different languages that they tried to, to, inter, to localize the language itself. But I think that becomes even more tricky because if you are trying to read the code of some like a like French company, and then it happens a lot. For example, I do I do know of some people that they worked on projects that they were written in languages that were localized, and specifically it was localized to French. And it's funny because you get code that is actually written in a in, for example like Basic, and they they're written in Basic, but they're written in Basic in some other language, and that becomes actually a, a challenge because like you have to overcome you need to learn the language and sometimes it's like i don't know it's just like doesn't really make sense to it's, it's tricky i think that eventually the the community kind of figured out that it, it's not really a good idea to localize the language so it's better to have like an international it's just code is written in english full stop yeah and it's easier to read then projects can move countries they can go from france they can go to spain or they can go somewhere else and that's that's not a problem because because everyone is written in, has written the code in English, but... Yeah, as in like, I I mean, I never really thought about it, how we take it for granted that if my piece of code, I give it to anybody, I guess, across the world, if it's written in like JavaScript or Python, everybody is able to pick it up and like read what's going on with it. And I don't know who made that decision, but hey, thank thank you to the people who standardized it and made sure that my code that I write... Yeah, I just hope somebody. that it doesn't change. Because, yeah. you know, yeah, lately, there are so many people that are trying to like get very... Yeah, kind of like they just want to like promote their, their language and trying to so it might, it might, they might have the idea of like potentially like localizing and, and translating the actual language and I don't know. Yeah, I mean one of the fun projects that I've seen is that people would try to make human language into a programming language so it would be able to be like um, loop over this uh, array like six times and then like just because you're able to write that English sentence it'll generate some code and then it'll take that and be able to do it but like that's just some crazy side projects I don't think it's ever going to be a standard when it does happen 
Yeah, I think the problem with that kind of approach is that it's just very general and people can, like there are so many ways of doing the same thing. So um, I think that like programming is just a subgroup of logic. So it's like that there is a specific group of things that we chose that they were part of the language. And that's actually, and that's the basic like logic stru uh, structures that you can have. And if you start adding, like if you just translate human logic into programming, you can you can end up with like weird, like so many different strange ways of like maybe doing loops, uh, which are not necessarily needed. Like you just yeah. need one way of doing it. There's like there's a level of like low lower level that you need, and when you get to that point, you don't really need any lower level or higher yeah. level than that. Um, Oh, we definitely have to talk about your web summit project later as well because yeah, we do loads of that. That'll be fun. But yeah, let's go back to when. Um, so basically, you had an engineering, electric engineering degree by the time you graduated university. Um, how did the next step happen? What did you do as the next step? How did this whole pathway of becoming? Yeah, that's a funny one. Um, so I did I did a study in Spain, but then I moved to Ireland to the Republic of Ireland, and then uh, so I lived there for a year, and that's that's when I actually learned. To program properly let's say and and I did learn a lot of uh, web development and I started I did some courses on like Ruby and at that time like Ruby on Rails was becoming like quite popular so I did learn Ruby on Rails specifically specifically I did learn a bit of Python as well and Django and then I yeah eventually I moved back well I moved to France and to Luxembourg and I ended up working for in the fintech industry um, as a Ruby developer, and that's actually how I got started in web development. And that's yeah. that's pretty cool because that's always the hardest step. Like I know a lot of people like in well back then in that situation, but also nowadays when you're basically finishing up university and like how do you make the jump from one to the other? So um, when you went to Ireland, did somebody already had something to offer you, or did you just blindly jump in there, or how did that transition? Um, I had a friend actually in Ireland, and this guy this guy didn't know Ruby and Rails and so we did I don't know he, he showed me around and like he got kind of like explained me how they how it worked and I started at that time actually I had a flatmate um, and this guy so we, we kind of decided that we wanted to do a project together and we started working on it was kind of like a, again another like social network and it was like a social network for Erasmus students Erasmus is kind of like a program that like Europeans they do when you are studying like you can go to a different country when you are if, oh, like they, studying yeah, abroad yeah exactly and that program is called Erasmus so I was part of that program and then we decided to make some kind of like a social network like a community where people could like share their whatever experience and and that's actually that was the project that we started working on and we did it with PHP and co-igniter and that was uh i don't know that was challenging but I, I actually took care of mostly of the front end because i didn't know that much of a back end at that time and so but eventually i actually learned like ruby and rails and we started moving into that kind of direction okay was that a was that an actual job or was it just a side project no it's just like a side project I, he was my flatmate and we were doing it on uh, like free time let's say Oh, that's so funny because I actually had kind of the same thing when I during uni when I was well, I wasn't flatmate because um, I was living at home during uni. I was in Montreal, uh, but I remember during the summer I would always try to find like a couple people to start like a project on the side. So one of them is like, oh, I wanted to build like a 
calendar builder that could fit into other people's websites. So, for example, if you're a you're a dentist and like I could be like I got the software that you put on your website that people could book directly appointments on it. Worked that during the summer. Don't know where that project went. <laughs> I think it's still like pending at the moment. You still have a code for that. Yeah, it's probably on my GitHub somewhere. It's definitely definitely hidden up there. But I think it's like I think the similarity of I guess how we think about these paths is that like you should be doing that, even though you don't get paid at the end during the summer. Yeah. You should think about these projects that you want to work on, just because it's so beneficial on top of the material that you learn at school. So I think I think from that point then, like when was the first time you got like a Full-time job for engineer. When was the time when somebody trusted you and be like, "So、um, I want you to build this stuff." I think the first job that you get is actually tricky to get. Always, it's actually quite of a challenge. And I did have a bit of a trouble because I moved to France and I did not speak French when I crazy. was crazy. And that, that was a, that was a bit of an yeah. It was an interesting period of my life. And I spent like six months looking for a job in France, and but I didn't speak any French, and that was a that was that was a big challenge because I thought that people would accept English speakers, but that that's not really the thing in the in at least in the area where I was living. And so yeah, I ended up actually working in Luxembourg, so I found a job there. But I spent literally like six months applying all over the place to so many places and. That was quite challenging, and especially when you don't have a, a kind of a software engineering background, trying to convince someone that you can do software is actually it's, it's tricky. And but eventually you get your first job, and once you have your first job, it everything just flows and it just moves for, moves forward, and it just becomes very easy. Yeah, I mean, shout out to everybody who's doing software engineering nowadays who doesn't have like a computer science or like a software engineering background because. Being, you definitely have to convince people to be like, I know how to do this. I know, I got. You definitely have the skill sets, but just being able to translate it and yeah,、uh, tell people. Because I know, I mean, I do know a handful of people who has a physics background, a、uh, math background, a I guess like bi biology background that do end up doing data. I mean, software engineering nowadays. So shout out to all the people for that. And then when you were saying that you have to apply so many places. My logic, well, my my advice is, if you haven't applied like over a hundred to two hundred applications, you, I don't think you've applied enough. Is that is that reasonable、yeah. nowadays? Think about it. Yeah, my my trick, I I always said that. Um, I I try to convince everyone when I find someone that is unemployed and is looking for a job and and they cannot find a job, I always like tell them this kind of like rule of thumb. For me, that that rule of thumb is applying every day. Five times. If you apply, if you send five CVs, five resumes every single day, after a year, you have applied more than a thousand five hundred times. It's literally impossible that you don't find a job. With, the probability is really high that you will actually find a job if if you apply a thousand times. The odds, yeah. Yeah, it's it's just really, really likely that you are gonna find a job, or at least you're gonna have a few interviews. So when someone tells me that they cannot really find a job. Most of the time is because they didn't apply enough times, and it is tricky. And people, I don't know, it's it's challenging, it's frustrating, but at the same time, I think it's possible. And you just need the first the first plunge. You need to, you just need to go. Yeah, and I really do think that somebody has to say that. Somebody has to say it because you never, not never, you never. Like for me, kind of rules that you rarely get the first job that you apply to. As in, I don't think I can relate to anybody who. Applied to one job and got it right away. I've, everybody I've spoken to、um, has gone through a lot of interviews, a lot of processes,、exactly. and then that's when they got it.、Uh, we're definitely going to dive into like how I guess your perspective of how interviews work in a bit. But、um, 
I want to bring it back to the point where, um, so what was this first job that you had? What was the first time where nine to five you were doing software engineering? Yeah, so um, um, yeah, it was mostly Ruby on Rails and uh, it was a very old application. We, we were migrating things over to a different application, but it was really like a massive fintech application that it just it was very difficult to work on that specific application because anything you could you touch would break something else okay. and it became like a very uh, but it was an interesting experience at the same time because it, it, i think it's important to have that perspective of what is working on a legacy on legacy code and on software that can actually break and and if you break it plus we have like legal issues so you cannot really break it and that creates a whole process behind it and how to release becomes very complicated and it's just like you need to give 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 a head like tell your clients that you're gonna put, update something and it just becomes a quite of a challenge and it was interesting definitely working on that side but um, yeah it is yeah it is good that um i guess even before getting ahead did you have an idea of that you one of your responsibility was to migrate older legacy code into newer code or was it when you got into it, nah, uh, you don't get that. Like, yeah. that <laughs> Who tells you that? <laughs> no one tells you that you're going to maintain a legacy application. That, that, that's actually like shooting themselves on the feet. Yeah, for the people, would, yeah, for the people like going that. into a new job, definitely ask that. I feel like that's a great interview question. In terms but I of think like, in your first job, it's, it's very difficult because you, you never worked at a company. So it is, you need to know what is working on, a le on legacy projects and what is working on legacy code. It's just, because that's part of the job. It's like, yeah, you can run away from it. Exactly, and it's important to have that experience because I think that yeah, it's just uh, very important to have. Even even if it's frustrating, and most most of us we actually like working on, on new code, yeah. new feature, yeah. all that stuff. Exactly, greenfield is always better than brownfield, and it's always better better than totally legacy. Yes, but I think one of one of the um, for the people who don't know the term of the Boy Scout rule, I think that's one thing that uh, I heard quite often in the past couple of years, which kind of goes with the mindset is that if you're going to be touching code, no matter where, it always should be cleaner than it was before you you got there. Yeah, so the idea is that like if you're gonna go camping, if you're gonna be at a spot, like by the time you leave it, that place has to be cleaner than it was. And I didn't realize the importance of it until you start seeing the actual effects of legacy code and every time you touch stuff. So. That's one of the rules that I swear about nowadays. Mm. The Boy Scout rule, I'm definitely swearing by it at that point. So um, that's really interesting to see your first, I guess, your first real-time job. Because when I got into my first like real full-time job, it's kind of the same idea where you jump in there. You don't know what you can do and you don't know what is to be done at that point. Like we need to see that. But yeah, exactly. You, you don't understand business. You don't understand what is, yeah. what is actually being an engineer. What are you doing there? Like wh why do they hire you? Why do they pay you? Like you need to understand exactly like what is the need. And the need is, in my opinion, like what we do is just automate things. Like we fix and automate things. That's, that's literally our job. It's like building tools and building things that can automate other people's job in a way. Yeah. And there are pieces of work that, for example, in this company I was working for, um, one of the big like tasks that we have to do is creating some documents. And those documents, they need to be filed to a specific um, yeah, organizations that they are taking care of that fintech regulation. So um, we had to file all these documents, but there were so many of them. It's like thousands or sometimes like it could be like many, many, many documents. And so if you want to do them by hand, you need like an army of 
100 people to do it. But the beauty of code, and that's actually where the need comes, is that you can actually create a software that can do that for, for and basically you are doing the job of 100 people and but you are just automating that and that's actually where the the whole need comes in and they hire you and they pay you for that and you need to understand that's actually the need and it's difficult to set, to get that impression because when you are studying you have that perspective of this is your like theory and you are learning your education and that's fine but that you don't really understand why business is business and why yeah the, the use cases like the actual like this is the input of what you got which is thousands of documents and the output is so that they met like they end up where they need to be but at the same time i think what the important point i'm pointing out there is that you really got to like think before you do a challenge as in like think smart before you waste time tackling the problem because if your solution was to like i guess hire more people that wouldn't be the exact solution as opposed to like writing a script that could automate all these I guess, decoding of the files and sending it to different people. So that is such a great point to point out because I remember in uni when we setting all the theory, like relational databases, like all the stuff. Yeah. It's so tough to get like a real life example of why you're doing this, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, you, you don't get it. And I think the, 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 in the initial, the beginning of the problem is actually that professors, many of them, don't get it either because they never worked on that on that thing. No, never. They, they haven't worked that much. Yeah. It's a hard word to say. <laughs> but many many of them, like at least in Spain, like people go the education route and they they became they become like professors and yeah. they keep like studying like a PhD and then they move po like post PhD and they they move on that field and then they do they teach and they start doing that. But basically, yeah. they never really had that big experience on the the professional side yeah. and maybe in different countries it's totally different like i think in the in the u.s specifically i think it's different than than in spain but in spain it can happen that you have teachers that they have very little experience in the private sector and that's actually what you're most likely going to do so it is it, it is a it's a big dilemma. I mean, for the people who didn't know, um, professors in university, their main role is not to teach. Their main role is doing research. And the side, I guess, role that they have to do is also teach to other people. So I didn't realize that until I graduated uni after uni that somebody told me that, like, oh, that makes sense. That's why they have all these, like, TAs and all these other people, like, kind yeah. of maintaining classes because their main focus when they're part of university is to actually do research. And I'm pretty sure I could say this for most people, for most professors, that they love doing research but teaching is always like a 50-50 I guess in terms of yeah. if, if you ask them what do you want to do for the next eight hours I'm pretty sure if they have the choice they'll be like I just want to do research at that point so yeah, of course that yeah. is an interesting thing and which is totally it's totally cool it's just that it's not aligned with what, what most people are going to be doing after uni yeah because I mean I think what drives me every day in in I guess software engineering is that like you're presented with a problem that you have to think about and whatever you put out there, whether it be an interface or whether it be some script that you write, the result has to be significantly impactful at the end of the day. And that's how businesses work. If it's not an impactful feature or ticket that you're working on, then what's the point? Um, I like when you're talking about working in fintech. Um, you know, <laughs> you know how you you can't round numbers in fintech. You can't you can like floor numbers. You can't do all that because then you're gonna have digits missing and all of it. Yeah. Um. How important was that? As in, you probably did you have like test coverages back then or? Yeah, we did have a lot of test coverage, and we had a really high test coverage, and we did have a lot of end-to-end -end tests specifically because we especially it was a big a big trouble 
meeting the deadlines. Um, the problem is that sometimes like you get these documents and uh, you have to file um, maybe, I don't know, a specific day and days an hour where you need to actually file them. And so you need to ensure that the code or your application is going to work at that time. And it's not going to cause troubles because that, that actually creates problems for people and, and your clients can, can literally sue you for that. And that becomes a, a bit of a trouble. So, um, yeah, it, it is important to, to keep a big coverage and ensure that the application is actually working. So, um, yeah, we had a lot of automated tests and, and we also had the QAs and people that were going through and ensuring that the application is actually properly functioning whenever, whenever it's needed. Nice. As in, I think this is more for people getting into, a, I guess, a job or choosing a job. Like, definitely make sure that the sector you're getting into, you know exactly what kind of responsibilities you get. Because, for example, if you if you work in a slightly lighter non-fintech and just building interfaces and having more A-B tests and the impact of one decision is less likely to getting sued at the end of the day, that's something that you should definitely consider when you, I guess, get a new job at that point. Um, but yeah, that was really cool because after that, you um, so you worked in Luxembourg in a bit and then uh, you moved to the UK after, which is where I met you at Hirespace. Yeah. Um, how was that? How was the jump, I guess, obviously, from moving one country to another? And I guess your role over there was slightly different in terms of, uh, I guess, uh, being able to look over other engineers a bit more. And then how, how did that whole like transition happen? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one because I, yeah, I, I did. The thing is that London was considered, at least in, to my eyes, and I think that it was a common like feeling. Like At that time, it was considered like the tech hub in Europe. So everyone in Europe wanted to come to London. And so I thought, you know, I just had that in my mind. And, and at some point I was like, what am I doing in Luxembourg? I should be in London. That's actually the place where I have to be. And so, yeah, I just decided to come to London and I found a job. Uh, actually, I found a job totally remotely, which was, was a funny one because I, it's the first and only time I've done that. Like finding a job, I, I interviewed all remotely and that. Well, I, I did actually come. I did come at some point to, to London. But yeah, I, eventually it was uh, pretty easy because I, I, I came to London already with a job, which was a, a good opportunity. And yeah, so, um, so that's where, where I met you at Hirespace. So I got these kind of like line management responsibilities there, which I remember was a bit challenging because my, my English was still kind of like, yeah, a bit rough. Um, <laughs> So uh, it's no, probably you were, still, you were perfectly fine. Like we all just said, we just messed around with you, saying like, "What? What?" <laughs> yeah, I think I think the, yeah. Well, the, the, I think the biggest trouble for me was actually understanding people. Not really, not necessarily that they understood me, but just like I had troubles yeah. understanding English accents. For the people who think that everybody in the UK speaks like the UK TV shows, it's not true. <laughs> like yeah, it's not because you can so... understand people on a TV show from the UK that you can understand people living here. Sorry to disappoint, um, but that is a that is a really cool thing because when you're talking about uh, all these remote interviews and like you don't even need to set foot into the country before actually being secured with the job, one of the great things is that obviously you'll be a lot more peaceful by the time you come in here, so that you're you know you know you have an objective and you don't have to run around doing yeah. all that. And the other thing is that as time gets more and more modern, I think for the people getting interviews nowadays, um, there's nothing stopping you from getting an interview across the world. So I mean, if you're located in in Europe and you get an interview in the US remotely, it's definitely something that happens nowadays. And um, the idea of the, well, I guess, can you just give us a brief like overview of how does, I guess, a modern interview process look like in tech for like a software engineering role? 
Well, um, I did actually have some interviewing experience. So I, I, when I worked at HomeAway, I'm well, so HomeAway is part of the Expedia brand, and I I did actually spend some time interviewing people. I, I probably interviewed like, yeah many many yeah many people actually many software engineers. And so the process, how it looks like, is usually so you get one a few like screening interviews first. So usually you get like a phone call. And that initial phone call is usually like just like cultural fit. So basically ensuring that you are actually a good fit for the company and that you, yeah, basically that they align, like your, your objectives and the company's objectives, they kind of align. And once you pass that screening interview, then you get to a technical interview, at least a, a first screening interview. And we did ask like a few like random technical questions just to ensure that you are not lying about the fact that you are an engineer and you have a specific experience so mostly questions like i don't know did you ever work at an agile team how did that go i don't know how um, so what is i don't know what is a function like, literally just like very very simple random questions but just to ensure that you are actually a software, software engineer and that you can do the you can continue the process and then uh, once that works then we usually invite you over to an interview if you are on site. So if you are in London, we would invite you to the interview. Otherwise, we would do like a remote call and we would go through multiple interview processes. Like it depends. Like sometimes the process can be harder, so you can get multiple interviews on that on site. So you could have like three or four interviews and on the same day. Usually that we do that because you want to separate different aspects of the job. So sometimes you have like a system designs, you have architecture on one side, you have like so actual software engineering or maybe like a pairing exercise. And so you get this different and eventually you get one like HR sort of thing. Yeah, like that kind of cultural. Yeah, I mean, values and everything. Yeah, that kind of So um, and then after that, if everything goes successfully, that's when the offer goes out and then exactly. sees how you, how you bounce back. So I guess in a very broad picture, I think it's a quite similar mold for a lot of different companies, not only just in Europe, but I think around the world as well, because the first bit, the phone technical screening, when they're asking you questions in terms of um, what have you been doing for the past couple of years, and then the second second call, I guess, in terms of whether it be uh, they give you like a really brief technical question, maybe one question in an hour to see if you could figure it out, that's yeah. usually happened during the second step. And then the third, third step is usually when they try to get you on-site, where you get multiple interviews uh, just touching different aspect of, of, I guess, a real day life yeah. as a software engineer. So I think that kind of mold is what most people should be expecting when they... Yeah, I did forget actually one, one part of the interview process, which is actually very important, is that we usually send a challenge. So we will have like this cultural fit interview, phone screening, then we have like a small technical interview, and then we send you a challenge. Mm -hmm. And then once you complete that challenge, then we review it, and then that's when the decision actually happens on whether you pass to the on-site interview or not. Um, yeah, that's the usually does. Yeah, and I like even from my experience, from all I've seen, like that, uh, even that step of after the first phone call and between the I guess the on-site and the second and the first phone call, that phase. Uh, the, there's usually two methods I've seen. One of them is either the people sends you a test that you could take home to do it, or Another one is that you schedule a call with one of the engineers that work there, and then for a whole yeah. hour you could share your screen if you're, yeah, I guess, uh, different, exactly. and then you could do that. But um, yeah, which is always an interesting process because um, 
some people think it's lengthy, some people think it takes so long in between, but at the same time, it really reflects on how accurate the day-to-day life is at the end of the day. So um, we could definitely talk more into that because yeah. uh, we're going to get into Homeway in a bit, but at Hardspace though, so that was kind of the first experience where um, it, the project itself was really fun in terms of you have to build loads of stuff to make sure that the, the system works, the internal tools work, but also the front end, uh, the customer facing. But we could talk about the bit where in terms of just giving advices to other engineers out there, how did you approach it in terms of what did you know what to, I guess, tell somebody? And how did you know that what you're telling somebody is um, good advice as opposed to just like... I don't know. I, I guess... I guess I don't know. <laughs> I just, I just you try know, to be honest. From that there. answer, that means that like the answer that you were giving is because you deep down knew, like you didn't question it in terms of like how true they are because you knew conceptually that they were good advices. So like when you say you don't know, it's because you probably never noticed it and like you never really questioned if they were true or well, not. Well, I guess the, my, the way I usually behave is just I try to be honest and I try to be helpful and I try to give like proper constructive feedback. So... And that's what I try to do. That sometimes I may be accurate, sometimes I may be totally wrong, but that's at least is the, my approach. Yeah. And even from my point of view, as in like, you did line, at, line manage me for a good amount of time there. From my point of view, it's kind of the same thing, where it's like, everything you've said was always for the better of the people, for the company and all that. But there was never a moment where I didn't, um, as in like, I didn't feel like I couldn't challenge what you were saying. Everything that you said, I could have challenged it. But most of the time, it's something that like, I. I guess made a lot of sense and there was another moment where I was like that's completely stupid <laughs> so, thank you yeah. <laughs> thank you but I mean that's I guess that's really good advice for anybody just like I guess working with younger people is that when you try to give advice you just got to believe in what you say you like don't doubt yourself because like at that point that's when all the doubts come in but from what I've seen when I was working with you that's basically how I felt at that point so well, I mean you, you can definitely doubt yourself like that sometimes you you may be totally wrong like you can give a bad advice like sometimes it happens like you you have an, a specific idea and you are wrong about it so it's important to be also flexible about what you think and sometimes like you have that's the problem of being dogmatic versus like being pragmatic and so being being dogmatic about anything like it could be coding it could be whatever in life like basically and i think it's not good like you should you should not be dogmatic you should be pragmatic you should be you should apply your concepts and what you know and try to solve the problem and if you don't solve the problem like it, it might be because you are just being dogmatic about what you think it's just like maybe you are obsessed of for example you want to use javascript for something and maybe the best tool to use is like python so just don't be like very hard on your decision because it may be that you are actually wrong and so you never know when you are going to be wrong and because usually you think you're right yeah and that's actually the problem i think what was interesting as well is that like i think throughout this whole cast so far that we didn't really mention any specific languages that we do because for the, i guess for the people going into i guess into a real first job is that a lot of times they'll focus on like i want this to be my first language i want that to be first language but after, I guess, a couple of years looking at it, is that you don't need to have chosen a language? As in you every... Can, you can change. I mean... Life I, changes, like, exactly. 100%. And you change. And it's totally... It's very simple to change, especially, like, languages and that. The barrier of entry from one language to another is not that high. Like, it's literally just spending a few... I don't know, a few weeks yeah. learning about it and you're done. Just and I think from it. your point of view of inter- interviewing people, you never really tell them that like you have to know this language. No, I think a lot not. of times the whole screening, the whole process that we were mentioning is to see how somebody thinks. Not, it doesn't matter what tools they use. 
is just see how they think how to approach a problem, and then learning how like a hammer works at the end of the day is definitely not as much work as like as learning how uh, I guess how you implement an algorithm or design yeah. a system at that point. So, um, and I think what's interesting is that uh, you had your job in Luxembourg and then you moved to London. Uh, the whole scene is slightly different, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, the higher space is a startup environment, so everything is a lot more like you know young. We had a pool table and all that kind of stuff. That was really nice. Yeah, so that was different than your first job, I'm guessing. So the first yeah, job it's totally different. Uh, on, on my first job, I was actually wearing a suit, and it was this, I don't know, this very corporate environment. We had like all these pieces of art around us, and like some very fancy people were coming to visit the offices, and yeah, it became we had like some policies that were interesting at least. I, um, for example, there was this policy where we had to wear a pink shirt once a week. And it was like, <laughs> no it's just, yeah, and it's like a, it's a very random one, but it, it is actually part of the, like the dress policy. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a different kind of environment than going to a startup. Yeah. You flip London, the switch basically, right? you know, it's yeah, just it's totally different, but, uh, but I, it, both are enjoyable. Actually, I, I came, I came to the realization that I actually enjoy wearing a suit, which is, it's a funny you miss thing. It. Like, you miss I, it sort of, because when you spend multiple years doing that, like, it's not that, you know, you, you find the advantages of doing that, and it's it's it's, it's not it's interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's so that's so cool because um, I mean, I can't recall another person, another deaf person that I know that wears a suit to work every day. So I wouldn't mind it if I end up getting like in a job. Actually, it's surprisingly comfortable. Like if you wear a suit every day, it becomes like a uniform. So you yeah. literally you have you don't need to think what am I gonna wear today. Like well, that's what happens same. with like for example like Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, always yeah. wearing the same thing. It's not a suit, but it's just because they don't have to think about it. Yeah, exactly. It, it so. reduces the cognitive effort that you need to put. Yeah, but that so like that was kind of like the difference where you're doing that, and then you got to a startup in London, and then uh, your next project that you worked on was Home Away, which a I guess it's a subsidiary of Expedia. So Expedia is massive in terms of booking flights, booking hotels. Yeah. And then one of their subdivisions is called Home Away, which is responsible for booking accommodations. Like, um, yeah. it's kind of, I'll say it's like an Airbnb similar competitor. Yeah, it's a similar competitor to, uh, it's, it's a competitor of Airbnb. I think it's a different, a slightly different business model because they are trying to get more like families and it's mostly like longer like durations. So you don't stay for one or two days. It's literally you are staying for a bit longer, like a week or two weeks, and it's usually like a, a proper house, and it's like a vacation house. Okay. And you go to a, like a beach house, and you get the full house for you. So and yeah, it's, um, but it's still it's, it's part of the the travel, the whole travel. Yeah, the whole uh, brand of Expedia. And I mean, it does make sense because I mean, like if you talk about all the accommodation and stuff, but. So t- yeah, let let us know what you came in as, as in like when you joined the team and everything. What what did they? What were your responsibilities? Was the setting kind of like a startup setting as well? Like what did that look like? Yeah, it it is. Uh, I think it's a kind of like the typical. I think it's yeah difficult to say because it's like most of the tech tech startups they have the same kind of things. So you get all these like pool tables and you get like food and startup, like startup yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a different thing, by the way, to what I had in Luxembourg, because it's a totally different environment, right? So, um, but it's interesting. So, you still, you get the table, the, we had PlayStations and things like that. I don't know, the environment was really cool. Like, uh, all agile teams, 
we had a we were actually working in the 26th floor of a building in, very close to victoria in the center of london that was amazing like the views were incredible from that place i mean you saw the backyard of the buckingham palace so yeah, i knew about insane. that i that's insane i actually saw the queen once it's like the, <laughs> you can see the queen like hanging out in her jar that's really cool and so yeah that, that's uh, that was a really interesting environment to work in and I did have the opportunity to go to the U.S. and all like multiple times, and the offices in the U.S. are are the same. They, they specifically have they have big offices in Austin, Texas, and they were like really like just really really cool offices and really cool people, like very 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 good engineers working there. So yeah, yeah. so that's interesting. Did did they get you to go there to I guess learn from other engineers? In that office, like, why, 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 why were you out there for with the company? I guess so. Um, I went there mostly. I would say just business. Like there are like, meetings that you people you need to meet and yeah, things that you need, projects that you need to move forward. And eventually, I think it's good to meet people in person because you are talking to them on Slack and you are talking to them yeah. on, like by email or something. And and you know you get these impressions and like somehow like you judge people just by what you see on slack and then what you don't know is that there is actually a person behind that has a life and has yeah for sure and it's really i think it's really valuable to like meet these people in person and you're also reading their code as well as in like exactly. you're reading people's code that you probably never met and then um that's one of the things so i guess the the actual role itself or like the job itself at home away was a lot of just building more systems building more designing them as well and implementing uh i guess a web stack yeah so we were working at um the, so the division it was called it's like marketing a part, part of marketing so specifically we were, we were building programmatic marketing so we were doing a lot of landing pages but in an automated way so landing pages for example if you were to to look for um, I don't know, vacation rentals, London. Mm-hmm. And then you will find some, like a landing page that is indexed and is literally tailored to you. So it will be like a landing page for males, I don't know, like 30 years old. And like it, it's got like features specifically just for you with pictures related to you and things like that. That's kind of the goal of what we were doing. And all of that is automated and yeah from from the user's perspective perspective you don't notice any of it you just yeah. see all this stuff being displayed so if you think that you're not being tracked when you browse the internet think again you're a hundred percent tracked most of the time well but it can be a good thing actually because you get experiences that are really tailored to you and mm-hmm. so your experience with some of these tools if it's done responsibly and it's done with a good intention it can be better. You yeah. literally are getting better experiences. Shout out to to Balin, actually. He said the kind of same similar concept. Oh, really? And it's, I think it's a shared... I mean, when you think about people thinking about a product and think about the user experience, that's a very shared common thought. And I mean, you just putting it out right now is because you kind of think about the same way at that point. So that was really cool. And then when you were talking about when you're working that, did you, did you also have the experience of it? I guess you mentioned that you had the opportunity to also interview people. And I guess also mentoring other people while you yeah. were going there. So there were there were multiple. So I was one of the senior developers there, and there were some junior developers. So part of my role was actually like mentoring them and working with them. And then I I did actually work. I did actually interview a lot of people there, and that was actually an interesting opportunity. It was specifically we were ramping up in Madrid, 
So I did interview a lot of uh, Spanish candidates. In Spanish? Yeah, in, in Spanish, <laughs> that, which is it was interesting because like I, I was actually supposed to do it in English, but sometimes like yeah. we were switch, we would switch to, to Spanish. It's a slip up. Which, yeah, exactly. It can happen. But it is interesting because what I said before, like I, I know the terminology in English. So they would say something in Spanish and I would not understand what they mean because I just don't know the technical terminology in Spanish. Yeah. Um, did that did that help engaging them if they're like qualified or not? Like just being able to probably probably like that that's it's it's kind of that's actually the challenge of interviewing. Interviewing someone is very challenging and it's very difficult to know if that person is actually good or not, uh, or if it's not even good because good is not necessarily a good word for that. Yeah, like, it's just like you you need to know if that person is gonna be able to do the job or not, and that is not necessarily easy. And even if you make like technical interviews and you happen to ask some guy like very technical things and that person like passes all the interview and is super good at that and you eventually think this guy is amazing, he's going to do a crazy good job and then he happens to be like super lazy, for example. And then what do you do about that? The guy basically is very technically capable but is not going to do the job. So... It's just like why interviewing yeah. is totally broken. It's super difficult to interview someone and be like sure that that person is actually going to to fit. Drink every time you know some per somebody like that. <laughs> Drink every time you know somebody who's super gifted, but then like at some point a little bit lazy. It, 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 yeah, it's just it, it's just very difficult to know. Um, yeah, and obviously from your position, you definitely seen all the range. You saw people that that could be the opposite. Somebody yeah. who might not be as technically gifted, but they're probably the most ingenious in terms of hardworking and being that. So exactly. that's why with this process is you, it's so tough to nail every single yeah. trait of somebody at that so point. So what I definitely learned on that with the experience interviewing so many people is that some, well, many times I was actually wrong. Like I actually gave a red flag to someone and eventually that person, like, I don't know, we we came to the conclusion that the person could do the job and then the person got in the, the company and then I actually totally regret giving a giving a, a red flag. So I was wrong about my, my perception. But then uh, the thing is, so what you learn is that you candidates can be rejected for all sorts of reasons. Like yeah, there are true. so many random reasons why someone could be rejected. So you, that should not discourage you. Like... If you and that's actually the reason why you need to apply so many times to different companies because you might apply to some company and you will be like super sure that you're gonna do a crazy good job at that place, but then I don't know they just reject you and you are like what why did why did they do it? But that's the thing is that there there is no there are so many weird reasons like it can be that the manager is on holidays and it's just like it's on holidays and they don't want to hold you on the line and just like keep you waiting and they just reject you for that reason and it's just super random but it, it can be one of the reasons why yeah. they, they reject you and there are so many recent reasons why people get get rejected so you just need to keep doing it and keep applying to different yeah places. i cannot put any more emphasis on the last point where you say you just like keep on trying because for the people who are going all these through these processes like why why did i do it like a lot of times you don't know why and then if it's out of your control it's not because you're not capable of doing it there's just some other factor that of just happened not. and then i mean definitely don't beat yourself up for it don't let that stop you from i mean give yourself credit give yourself credit because you're going through the whole process and when you do get to the point you're definitely going to be uh, justifying who you are at that point so 
so good to hear from you because you've definitely been on that position to be, I guess, looking back and looking at it. And it is frustrating because sometimes you actually find everyone thinks that some candidate is really good, but then some person is saying, no, this, this guy didn't give me a good feeling. And you're like, why didn't he give you a good feeling? <laughs> I'm totally sure that that guy is really, really crazy good. And yeah, I don't know, that- it's just like, eventually one of the one of the guys that is interviewing didn't i don't know like that yeah. per, like the person for whatever reason it, it may be that he had the same name that someone <laughs> that he didn't like god knows i mean there's ex's so, name about yeah it, it can be something like that like we don't know we are humans yeah. and we are all like emotional about things and yeah so it's just like you do not you don't have all the variables under control so because of that, it's frustrating, but some, some candidates are actually right. rejected. And whether, I mean, whether it be an interviewing process for a software engineering job, or I guess going on a date with somebody that you don't know about, or pitching to a VC fund and everything, yeah, it's, it's all the same context the same. where anything could, I mean, anything could go wrong. Whether it's because the other person doesn't like your hair or whatever it yeah, is, exactly. or the VC just finds like a little niggle and they're like, no, we're not going to put money into it. It's the same idea that it's not always you that's completely fucked up. <laughs> yeah. It's always just the contact sometimes. Um, but that's great. Um, the other point that is really fun that I want to talk about is after working at Home Away, you uh, became a contractor. So yeah. in the software engineering world, it's quite uh, it's quite a topic that's uh, that people love to talk about. In terms of the the two sides is you could be a full time employee with a contract that uh, you know have all the vacation days, uh, yeah. salary, and all that. Or you could be a contractor, which is yep. you're more independent. Uh, you work by, I guess, most of the time, shorter contracts. Um, yeah, like from from your point of view, in terms of you could you could definitely give me a better explanation of what being a contractor is and yeah, how so, you went from one to the other. Yeah, I guess the um, for me, I think, and for many software engineers, is that doing working in this on the same project for a long time becomes very tiring and becomes very frustrating. And so I like working on projects for like a year, maybe. But after that, somehow, like I need to move on. And my, my body actually asked me to move on to a different project. And sometimes it's not that possible because if you are working for a company, it's kind of like you have this commitment that you're going to stay yeah, with like them. full time, right? Full time. That's exactly what I'm saying full time. So you, you probably are going to stay there for a long time. And they expect you to be working on whatever project that they have. And if projects usually last more than a year. So they, they are expected to be there for like five years or something. And so um, it, for me, it's just very difficult to like commit to working on the same project for five years. And that's a personal decision. I just, mm-hmm. so I don't mind coming to a project one, once when the project is one year old or when the project is three year old. But what I don't want is to be working there five years. So being a contractor is really interesting because what they, they hire you at a specific times that they need to get more people on board and they need more, more like horsepower. They just need to get more engineers to, to work on the project. So it might be when the, the project it might be like five years old, but they just need more people now. Yeah, and now for a period exactly. of time to... Because maybe they are hiring more people. It's usually that that's the case, is that they are hiring other people and they just hire more contractors this time to just to, to ramp up. And then uh, once once the project is like done or when once you are your contract like, is yeah. over basically yeah literally you have like like a sorted contract maybe they hire you for like six months and they hire you for for a year and to me that's actually the crazy that's the best thing actually is that you are moving forward like moving to different projects often and that is actually liberating to me and yeah it, 
the downside is that you need to be changing jobs every like six months. Or yeah, every year. we can talk and about the pros and cons actually. So um, I guess you you have a quite in depth perspective from your point of view. I think the general picture that people talk about contractor versus full time. I guess one of the things that people talk about is daily rates. Contractor yeah. generally charge a daily rate, um, and most of the time you will notice that contractors have, in the big picture, a higher salary than a full time employee. And um, but when we talk about the downsides, the one thing that I did notice is that for a contractor, if you don't work uh, all the time, um, you don't actually get paid on the days that you don't work. So in yeah, terms of perfect. holidays and everything, it's a different structure. So full time employees, you're guaranteed a couple of holidays throughout the year that you take. But as a contractor, you don't have, I guess. Um, no, you you pay you pay for your holidays. You pay for your days off. If you need time off, you just you need to account for that. And also, you need to account for the time that you are not you are not in, in a contract. So it, it can happen that you you between contracts, I don't know, you don't find the contract that fits you, and that can take a bit longer. So you need to account for that as well. Mm-hmm. So you definitely have a higher salary. Let's say call it salary. It's not really yeah. yeah. You have like higher income in income. a year, I guess. Yeah, but at the same time, you need to account for all these things. And you also have insurance and other things. But anyway, I don't want yeah. to. I don't want. We're to not like, going to dive into the details yeah, of, of that. But in terms of like being still, more independent, that's definitely like the difference. Is that full time employees, you don't have to be as independent and managing your own like extra. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you basically have less headaches if you are a full time employee. You just need to go there. That's the only thing you need to ensure that you show up there and do the job. Yeah. While if you are a contractor, you have other things to care about. And usually you have agencies, so there yeah, are like let's, some... Yeah, let's talk about of, different ways of tackling it. So you just mentioned agency and everything. So I guess from your uh, from your experience of that, you ended up joining an agency that ends up sourcing a contract for you, Yeah, how that works. So um, so I offer my services. to. So I have my own, like, so you usually get your own limited company. So you have mm-hmm. my own limited company, and then my company is kind of contracting, so offering services to that agency. Okay, so and there's that, a middle agency called One yeah. One Ways in Between. Yeah. Which it, it was a bit even crazier because I actually was working for a different agency before. But like, so my company, I work personally for my own company. My company is contracting or offering services to another company that is called Tech Systems. Then Tech Systems is actually selling my services to 101 Ways. And <laughs> 101 Ways was actually selling my services to a different to the final client, which, and, uh, which is where I actually work. Right. So literally, <laughs> they were like, Free companies, and I was working for the final client, but there was this like free middle man. Yeah, that's the life but, of a contractor. <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's a life and the business of like the contracting exactly. and software engineering. So, which is the kind? It's the kind of thing that you, you don't see as a full time employee because you are just going to work for one company yeah. and you are engaged with that company, and they kind of care for you and they they put you. They put you on a salary. They they give you all these like I don't know whatever like pension schemes or things that that they have. While as a contractor, you need to look after yourself. Like that's yeah for that's sure something that your own company has to provide you as a personal. Uh, yeah. Let's let's talk about what you actually do then. So like you're still a software engineer and everything, but now you work for uh, well, you're the end client of that contract is a company called Dazen yep. or Dazone, however they want to call it. And uh, you're still contracted as a software engineer. So in terms of like building systems and everything, is the like I guess the day to day life as back when you had a full time job as opposed to contractor. How does that look like? Is it still quite similar? Where I think you... it's the same. Honestly, it's, it's very it's very similar. I guess that there is one major difference is that as a as a full time employee, you get more. You have to deal with a bit more of like the 
internal politics to call so, it in a way like in a way like you need to you are part of a family mm-hmm. so you are part of a company and you need to like like look after the company so you need to attend all these like all hands and ensure that you are going like you, you know what the strategy of the company is because you are expected to you're expected to be there for the long term yeah for the future so, outcome of exactly it. so you are included in all these conversations but as a contractor, you are not included in all those conversations because you are not part of the company. You are just offering a service. It's like if you are planning to, I don't know, remodel your house, are you going to tell that to your plumber? Like your plumber doesn't necessarily know, need to know all this information. How many rooms are in the house or whatever? Yeah, exactly. Like, if you are pl- yeah, if you're planning on doing something with, in, with your family, yeah. your plumber is not going to know that. If, if you were to have someone else like live your, with your, you live with I... you then that person needs to be included in all those conversations but that's the that's kind of the thing is that a contractor is just offering limited services so there is a, a scoped job while as a full-time employee you not you're not necessarily a scope yeah the business objectives you got to be much more hands-on in terms of like I guess the values, OKRs, and like yeah, the exactly. metrics, you're definitely gonna be more involved in that as opposed to now when you do yeah. the contract thing. As a contractor, what you do is you you kind of follow them. So mm-hmm. if they give you values, that's part of the job. It's like giving you like following whatever like values that the company has and like oh like just following the the decisions that Oliver took for you. That's that's pretty cool. Um, for the people who don't know what Dazen is. Um, can you just give a, a really brief explanation yeah, so, and also like what you've built there, I guess? What kind of fun little projects you got to build? All right, that's good. Uh, so I, so Dazon is kind of like Netflix, but for sport. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting company and they are like, I don't know, I just got growing like crazy. It's really, really, really interesting to be there. And there's loads of competitors. Like Amazon is trying to get into the sports streaming business. Yeah. You have uh, Facebook doing it. You have Twitter doing it. You have obviously all the TV channels like yeah, Sky, BT. ESPN Definitely. doing it, so it doesn't sit in this ecosystem of streaming. I think it's a big market, and, it, and they are all trying to get get a bit of that market. Of course, yeah, it's and, massive. Yeah, but in terms exactly. of what kind of what kind of but, projects they so ask you to build, I guess, like well, what's yeah. So it? I had multiple. That, that's one of the interesting things as being being a contractor. Is that I moved teams a lot there. So I moved. I worked there for like three different teams, three or four different teams, and so I work in so many different projects. So I worked in, now. I'm working in. DevOps. So I'm mostly like doing like setup of like AWS accounts and like okay. like setting up like I don't know Kubernetes or things like that. I'm looking after like some applications that we like to maintain the accounts and to maintain like services and so we basically offered a platform for the other engineers that are working at Dozen. And then I, I worked as well at the help section. So kind of when you go like help uh, look for the customer service and all that. So we build uh, another version of that project, and that's actually one of the projects I work for. Then uh, I don't know. We 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 build one that was really interesting. It's like a linter. So it's linting all the code that actually anyone writes, and whenever someone submits some code to uh, the, the to Git, then we actually analyze the code, yeah. and then we check if there's some like security issues on that. And it's kind of like a static analysis, but we do a lot of like yeah, like reg access to find if someone actually oh, that's committed. that's so cool. It's like a compiler, basically. It's kind yeah, of like a But it's so processor. cool because we build it with like serverless and it's just like running all the code of, like running through the code of everyone yeah. and checking that you didn't put any secrets or something on that. Yeah. So <laughs> it increases security and it, it was a really interesting and fun project. It's a challenge as well. Yeah, like, you know, And for people who don't code, this is like, 
you're never going to, it's not a front end thing. It's not a user interface thing. You're never going to see this kind of stuff. It's basically for engineers out there. Yeah. It's just another layer of security making your, for people who don't know what the linter is to begin with, it's basically this program that you can put your code in and then it will kind of clean up uh, your code a bit in terms of uh, adding indents, uh, putting yeah. colons, and also you could have it, special it will, rules on top yeah. of it. It so, will basically tell you what is wrong with your code. Like somehow, like yeah. analyze your code and tell you, oh, there is... Uh, you shouldn't be doing this, or you exactly. should be doing that. It's a layer of, uh, of most modern IDEs have a layer of linting in there. So that's yeah. basically, but you, what was great about your project is that you were part of a team that had to implement it, which is even more interesting at that point. Yeah. So you really did touch everything across the stack in uh, in Dazen, but um, I definitely want to dive into another project that you've got going on, and it's called WiserTag. And yeah. um, you are the founder of it, you're an entrepreneur, in terms of you were able to get I mean, the ball rolling on it. This is always the hardest bit, and I definitely want to guess like your point of view in terms of how did you start with nothing? Because obviously, there was a point where you just didn't have a project to begin with. So, tell us, um, tell us what I guess Wiser Tag is. What is the state of it today? And then uh, we're gonna dive in between, like you know, point zero and point today, which is yeah, totally. Um, so, <laughs> so Wiser Tag, kind of the mission that we have is trying to connect people. Um, no, not to connect people. Uh, I don't even know the mission of my company. <laughs> uh, so uh, the the mission is actually connecting things with people. So the way we achieve that is by using like QR codes and NFC. So for example, the one project that we are selling at the moment and it's kind of like going all right. And it's a kind of a plant tag. So when you buy a plant, they use like an indoors plant. They will come with a small like label, and that label is like filled with bamboo and has like a, this QR code. And then when you scan the QR code, it brings you to a page, and that page has like all the plant care details, and it has like like a lot of information. Like the now. name of the plant to begin yeah, with. The name of the plant that's actually very important. And many people buy plants, and you have your plant at home, and you don't even know the name of the plant. So if you want to look for the plant care, like you don't even know the name of the plant. Yeah. Like that's, is a, so it basically has all this information and and it's all in one, it's just scanning that QR code and gives you all this information. So in a way you are kind of connecting that plant to your, to the person that the owner. That lives and, with it, the yeah. person that lives with the plant. And that's, it's just a very simple project, but it's kind of like a showcase project. And the, but the end goal is actually building more experiences like that. Like maybe like you buy a book, and then on your book, there would be like this QR code, you scan it, and then you get to a community, for example, you get to a forum, and you get to, you basically expand the features. Yeah. That's some, something that the book cannot do. The book with the paper like material, you cannot really access to that. And so you, you need to extend that in a digital fashion. So you need to build like systems behind it. To, to handle all, all of those features. I think the best term to, to be using at the moment is Internet of Things. Yeah, that's the thing, is that Internet of Things is a very interesting terminology, but the problem is that it kind of implies that you have Internet and that you have, you know, basically oh, wait, have do you, Internet. Do you not need it for the QR code and everything? The but... problem is that if you want to have Internet, you need to be connected. So that item needs to be connected to Internet. True. So it needs to have circuit circuit behind it should, it should have like batteries it should have yeah. like all these electronics to handle that but at the yeah. moment your label is none of it that's the thing so there is an intermediate step and it's called the connected things so connected things is just for example if you add a, a QR code to your plant or to your whatever project and that item actually 
can you can extend features and you can give extra information or extra features through that label yeah and and in a way it's kind of like middle between connected like the actual normal thing and internet of things so it's just like a middle um like market yeah and it does make sense because when we're talking about scalability you don't have to reprint a tag every single time just because you could update the data or the information directly exactly. on the information and realistically it's better for the environment because yeah, you don't have to waste all of it so <laughs> that is a really cool thing in terms of um the project itself so what is the state of it today? So I'm guessing, can we? How do we get it? Is it so, available or? So um, at the moment, uh, it's yeah, it's, it is available actually in one shop. There are a few shops actually that well, there yeah, there are three shops that are actually selling the the plants, and they send they sell these plants with these labels, and then you can once you buy the plant, you actually can scan this label, and then you get all these details. Now the uh, the final so my kind of mission and what I'm actually trying to build mm -hmm. now it's a different system so you could build it yourself so if you have a, your own project so you could build uh, you have this tool that i'm actually right now building and so with that tool you could build this kind of system for yourself and handle all those qr codes and how you like where they go and analytics for that is yeah, very important to and it's kind of challenging if you have your own if you want to build that on your own it's a bit challenging because you need to include analytics. You need to build like all these landing pages. Well, yeah, because every bit... plan is different, or every book is different, and every page has exactly. to be according to a unique code on and every single one of the labels. So yeah, I'm trying to build this framework and this tool that people could use to build all the products. And yeah, so that's the that's the state of it at the moment. That's actually really cool because when you're saying building all these like tools and everything. The people using it, um, they don't know how it's being implemented and all that. And like that's you that you have to think how, like what technologies you use, especially exactly. as your software engineering background. You have to choose what technologies, you have to choose where you're hosting it, you have to, I guess, make decisions in terms of how do you market it as well. So it goes beyond of just the responsibility of building the tools because you have to put it in the shops that you, you're saying to begin exactly. with. Exactly. Well, this is a challenge. Like This sales, is why it's so interesting because... Sales is crazy. How does like, sales work is probably what everybody wants to know. So, so tricky. I could put some context for the people just listening to this that like this project was nothing. As in um you had an idea. You you didn't build anything, you didn't print anything. Um it was basically just a blank canvas. So that was step zero. As uh it evolved, I guess, um you built the initial MVP. So going into the problem, you build like a smaller system that makes yeah. it work. So it was very simple. Um I mean yeah. you could definitely <laughs> tell me more of what's going on with that, but I think just the big picture is that when you had nothing, you just built a simple system and you didn't manufacture like thousands of labels. You literally had one label yeah. and you use that as an example to do all yeah, of it. Yeah, we used that one MVP and we sold it to up to one shop and they were pretty interested in it. And then we went all way, all way with that. And then we actually manufactured them in China and we built like 2000 labels like that. And it, it was quite, quite a challenge actually manufacturing that in China. So. It was very interesting and then so you get all these sales from one side it's very tricky to do then you get all this like marketing that you need to do to like a company it's kind of like a companion for the sales like you cannot have basically sales without this marketing in my opinion mm -hmm. and then you get this mvp that you need to produce and then once you have your mvp you need to actually get to production and build that mvp but in a more like let's say let's call it like a beta beta product and then, so you produce that and then you have to like put it in the market and actually like sell it to other shops and start scaling up. And once, uh, that, that's kind of where we are at the moment. And 
hopefully we can actually move to the point where we can actually make a bigger order get more more of these products and yeah. yeah and like this is this is all considering that like your background was and and software engineering and now nowadays when you have all these other equations marketing all that that's really just builds your role at the end of the day that you're not a software engineer anymore you're an entrepre- entrepreneur because it requires you to do all these different stuff you do know at some point that you're gonna have to drop one of the other you do know at some point you have to drop one. i have a big a big <laughs> you know i have really a lot of troubles like <laughs> delegating tasks and yeah i i tend to I just want to do everything, and and that, and that's actually a big challenge to me. And but definitely, I think at some point I probably will need to choose one of the or the other because you your time is very limited. Or neither, you know. Yeah. <laughs> or neither. neither. I mean, that's uh, always a, yeah. So I mean, that's that's always interesting because you could definitely see there's progress of looking forward to it, which is I guess if anybody has any idea, the path wouldn't be that dissimilar. You're start going to start with nothing. You're going to start building one thing. You convince people with that one MVP and everything, which is amazing at the end of the day. If you have some, even your first users and they give you feedback, that's always so important because like your product that you're building is going to depend on that at the end. So um, if you guys don't know about it, go check it out. It's wiseertag.com. Yeah. Uh, all the products is on there. And I guess like just for the rest of this podcast, I guess we've learned so much about it. There's a lot of people that might want to go into that role. So I guess going into the software engineering, but also starting their own thing. What kind of, I guess, general advice do you have for them? So um, I think my, my general advice for anyone that is trying to like either like go, if you if you want to go soft, software engineering, I think that you definitely need to have some kind of technical background. So I think it's very important to like learn the basics about programming. And there are so many online resources, to be honest. And I think it's challenging at the beginning. It's really challenging, especially probably the first year or yeah, probably. Well, you, getting your first job. Like, yeah, or getting good. your first job. Like, it's really challenging. Challenging. But once you get there, I think it's just amazing. It's like the, the greatest thing that we can have. It's just an amazing skill to have. I think being able to program and build your own products and automate tasks. Just this morning, I was automating something. And I was <laughs> I had this problem because I, I was... I got like a weird, like badly charge on TFL. TFL is the company that charges us for, yeah, for when you move in London, basically paying the tube and paying the underground. So I got this, I wrote this small scraper algorithm that would actually like get me all the incomplete uh, journeys and you know, basically, oh, just, uh, just so you could, like get your refund. <laughs> yeah, so I can get my refund, right? Yeah, get that and money. <laughs> it's like literally, I they owe me like 170 pounds, but if if I want to go by like one by one manually, it's just like so challenging to do. And it's great to have a tool that I can just like code this algorithm, and in one hour, I actually do that whole thing automated, and it just does the whole refund for me. Wow. And that's actually really great. And it's one of the it's the kind of thing that you can do if you are a software software engineer. Um, then uh, on the other hand, like when you are building a product, that is actually another kind of set of skills. And I'm still kind of like a newbie on that side, yeah. so probably I'm not the best to give examples. No, but your advice is just as good as anybody who's tried it. So yeah, well, I tried, and I think that I think it's very important to keep trying and building stuff you definitely learn a lot like when you are building your own product your own company like wh- whatever it is you are, you you will learn a lot and i think learning is just like the, the the key thing that we have to do in life it's just like keep learning lifelong learner that's great that's great advice anybody who's got a project coming up i mean you're 
always going to mess up at some point, but you're always going to do something great to compensate for it. So learning and process, that's a really good thing for people listening. And I guess, final bit, is there anything uh, people could follow you on? Any any social media or even yeah, just a so project? I think Tell us about that. Most social media I'm called is at Carlos Barraza. So it's difficult to like say. So it's B- I'll link it. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. So if you put it on the description now. So basically, I'm available on Twitter. I'm available on like whatever, Instagram. Yeah. Uh, probably my, my website is the simplest one. It's like carlosbarraza.com. And uh, then you can see, follow everything. And of course, like Wiser Tag, we will be in Web Summit this year. So if you happen to be there, so just... This year, 2019. <laughs> That's the year. That's pretty sick. Thanks again, Carlos, for being on the show. And uh, right. always, always happy to learn more, more from you and about you. Thank you, Perrine.